in the latter part of the Second World War. Internment Camp B-70, which was located 30 kilometers away from Fredericton, deep in the woods of New Brunswick, was a camp for prisoners of war, including Nazis. Some of the prisoners that were held there made several repeated attempts to escape, one of which managed to be foiled by a performing cat from an animal circus. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. There were 26 prisoner of war camps, just like Camp B-70, all across Canada during the Second World War. However, they didn't only hold prisoners of war. Camp B-70 was filled with a curious mix of Italian and German prisoners of war and Canadian citizens who were interned for their political beliefs, and sometimes simply because of their national origins. These prisoners of war could cause the guards headaches with their frequent, innovative, and remarkably complicated, well-disciplined, and superbly organized escape attempts. While Canadian civilians weren't supposed to know about the existence of Camp B-70 in Ripples, New Brunswick, some 30 kilometers outside of Fredericton, in a curious move, Colonel Hubert Stettham gave a rather ominous interview with Fredericton's Daily Gleaner newspaper in June of 1941, in which he described the escape attempts. German officers generally have given the most trouble in the camps. They show no appreciation of kindness. The attitude of the younger ones is, this is war. Thinking of ways to escape is the prisoner's favorite pastime. Tunneling is their favorite way of trying to get out. In Camp B-70's first phase, it held civilians that the Canadian government thought were suspicious due to their national or even religious backgrounds. Shamefully, a disproportionate amount of internees in that first phase of the prisoner camp were actually Jewish refugees who were trying to escape the horrors of Nazi Germany. But that's a whole other story that we'll maybe cover another time. That first phase didn't last very long, though. In early 1941, the camp was shut down, and its prisoners, who were deemed completely harmless, were largely released. In the summer of 1941, the camp was closed, and it was renovated into a much more secure complex that would be holding German Nazis and Italian fascist prisoners of war. In its second phase, Camp B-70 became a heavily guarded and fortified location. Its compound was enclosed by two separate barbed wire fences, had six sentry towers, and it had a dozen searchlights. Almost immediately after the German and Italian prisoners of war moved into Camp B-70, they launched what was probably their most ambitious and complicated plan to escape. Fredericton historian Ted Jones interviewed the guard who stopped the escape, Second Lieutenant George Roy, for his seminal book, Both Sides of the Wire. 
Actually, it was not an escape. I detected something amiss regarding the absence of water around number one hut. Upon investigation by the provost sergeant and his men, they found a tunnel from the boiler room leading westward and within a few feet of the barbed wire fence. As I recall, it was about six feet deep and two feet in diameter and partially filled with rainwater. Jones also tracked down Heribert Pullman, one of the German prisoners who had organized what he called the Great Tunnel Escape, and he interviewed him too decades after the failed escape. I was one of the internees who took part in the tunnel escape. In the corner of the hut, we saw the floor, and this became the entrance to the tunnel. With primitive tools, we began our work. We made civilian clothes to be worn when we escaped to the other side of the fence. But one day, our plans were ruined. A guard noticed the ground was somewhat sunken. There was an immediate roll call, and everyone got out of the tunnel. We were covered with dirt when we came back into the daylight, realizing the dream of freedom was gone. We were not punished in any way for taking part in the tunnel escape, because the military authorities did not know who really belonged to the group. There was a learning curve to building these tunnels, and the first attempts were too shallow, leading to tunnel collapses. The prisoners began to dig deeper tunnels, some six feet underground. But the problem with this was that this meant that they were digging up a lot of soil, which had to be disposed of without arousing suspicion. The prisoners would hide dirt in their uniforms and covertly dispose of it in the garden when the guards weren't looking. Or they would flush it down the toilet, which would lead to a lot of plumbing problems and a local plumber from Minto being called in frequently to fix pipe blockages. One time, a plumber from Fredericton named Carl Gow just happened to be in the camp when the guards discovered yet another tunnel being built, and he got the opportunity to examine their work for himself. He told Ted Jones in an interview, There was an airline down to the tunnel for the men who were digging, made up of empty milk cans with no tops or bottoms, placed end to end. A compressor to force air through this rustic tubing was made out of a kit bag, cut in two, with a round piece of board going up and down inside, pushing air into the tubing. Very ingenious on their part. The dirt was then transferred to the pockets of their uniforms and carried out to the playing field and emptied. Another tunneling escape attempt was foiled by a cat. Not just any cat, though. This was a performing cat from a circus. I guess the first question here would be, why would there be a performing cat from an animal circus in a Nazi prisoner of war camp in the first place? Well, you see, Camp B-70 wasn't only filled with actual prisoners of war. Many of the internees that stayed there were Canadian citizens who the government suspected of sympathizing with Germany or Italy. The reasons could be somewhat tenuous at times, including simply because of their ethnic background, or perhaps they had ran afoul of strict wartime laws for any number of reasons, such as their political beliefs, or, in the case of Camp B-70's most famous guest, Montreal Mayor Camillian Hood, opposing conscription. Conscription means mandatory military service, which is the draft, basically. 
Mayor Chameleon Hood's principled position opposing conscription wasn't exactly radical or unpopular. When he was finally released from Camp B-70, near the end of the war, 50,000 people showed up at Montreal's train station to greet him. He was re-elected as mayor of Montreal, and he kept being re-elected for the rest of his life. John McKeel from Sable River, Nova Scotia, had spent the summer of 1941 working renovating Camp B-70 after the first phase of holding refugees was shut down and to turn it into the more formidable fortified camp they would hold actual Nazi prisoners of war. Although Camp B-70 was supposed to be a secret, many people knew about it. One reason was that its construction ran badly late, and it was only completed a matter of hours before the first prisoners were due to arrive. John McKeel and his fellow construction workers, who were supposed to board trucks to depart the camp at 9 a.m., the day of the prisoners' arrival, were keenly aware of what the camp was actually for and who would be arriving in a few hours' time. They didn't want to get on the trucks to go back to Fredericton. They wanted to stay behind and see what real, live Nazis looked like. John McKeel later told Ted Jones in an interview, We succeeded in talking the drivers into delaying our departure until after our German guests arrived. We were allowed to stand at the side of the road opposite the internment complex to await the prisoners as long as we stayed well back, and there we waited. All of us many times had seen pictures of German soldiers in flashy uniforms strutting their stuff in parade squares. Any minute now, those uniforms, newly pressed and generously decorated with war medals, would come over that hill. When the prisoners appeared, however, McKeel was shocked at what he saw. I couldn't believe my eyes. These weren't German soldiers. They were civilians. There were even young boys among them. Instead of parade square soldiers, these people were slouching along as if each step taken was to be the last. Instead of smart uniforms, their clothing looked like it had been discarded by a bunch of down-in-the-heel tramps. We didn't know what wrongs these people had committed, but looking at them, one couldn't help but feel pity. It should be noted, though, that not all of the civilian internees were innocent. Another famous guest at Camp B-70 was Adrian Arcand the leader of the fascist National Unity Party, which had close ties to the Nazi party in Germany. He, along with 10 other top officials in his political party, were arrested in 1940 for plotting to overthrow the Canadian government, and he was sent to Camp B-70. They don't actually necessarily seem to have been trumped up charges either against him. If anything, there's some remarkable evidence that they got off easy. A U-boat landed a German spy on the Gaspé Peninsula during the war, and his instructions were to get to Montreal and contact Adrian Arcon, who would provide contacts and money to help him in his mission. You can hear that in an upcoming Backyard History podcast called The World's Worst Nazi Spy. By the time he got there, though, Adrian Arcon was already in prison in Camp B-70. After the war was over, just like Mayor Chameleon Hood 
Arkan tried to revive his political career. He reestablished his old fascist political party in Canada, and he ran for office. Unlike the mayor, he didn't win, but alarmingly enough, he came second. Even as late as 1965, we can find Adrian Arkan still promoting fascism in Canada. In that year, he still managed to attract some 650 people to a rally he hosted. Despite that example, though, many of the civilian internees in Camp B-70 were not actually fascist sympathizers. But they were being rounded up because they came from German, Italian, or later Japanese backgrounds. One of these Canadian internees was William Schultz. He was an elderly shopkeeper from Nova Scotia who was interned in Camp B-70 because he was a German immigrant. William Scholz was a big animal lover. He was renowned for his talent in training his many pets. When he was sent to Camp B-70, he brought along two of his dogs and one of his cats. The inmates put on all sorts of performances while they were in the camp just to keep entertaining themselves. For example, musicals, plays, they did painting, there was artwork. So the interned William Scholes did the kind of performance art that he knew, and he established what was called the Fredericton Internment Camp Circus. His three pets would perform shows for the entertainment of both the guards and the inmates of Camp B-70. They were apparently pretty talented animals. The two dogs could ride along on a scooter together, and one of them could even drive a tricycle. Cat had a balancing act that it would perform. During one of these shows, which both the guards and the inmates were attending, several Germans snuck away to work on their tunnel while everyone was distracted. One of the guards named Harry Burberry later told Ted Jones what happened. A tunnel was being dug underneath the compound road towards the main fence. However, it was a cat, one of the internee's pets, who gave it away. During this show, in a distinctly out-of-character move, the cat suddenly ran away. Alarmed, William Scholes and the guards went off to search for the missing pet. Harry Burberry continued. A guard in the lookout tower noticed that the cat stopped on the road and put his head down to listen for the sounds of digging underneath the ground. It didn't take the guards long to realize the situation and close in. The prisoners were just a few feet from the barbed wire fence. Not all of these escape attempts were foiled, though. Once the camp did have a serious escape, two Italians and two Germans who were supposed to be working in the woods suddenly slipped away. They had managed to hide civilian outfits under the prison uniforms, which were denim with bright red dots on them. A large search was begun for the four escape prisoners, and despite the mere existence of Camp B-70 officially being a secret, wanted posters for the four escaped prisoners of war were put up all around Fredericton. The escaped prisoners' photos were published in major newspapers like the Daily Gleaner and the Telegraph Journal, and the public was appealed to not approach the prisoners because they were dangerous. The four prisoners were found ten days later, lost, cold, hungry, and quite badly bitten by insects. 
and they were brought back to the camp. The guards had quite enough of the prison escapes by this point. They called an assembly of all the prisoners, and they announced that there would be no more tolerance for further escape attempts. They told the prisoners that from now on, anyone caught trying to escape would be shot on sight. That very night, the prisoners were awoken by the sound of three gunshots ringing out in the night. The next morning, three of the prisoners' beds were empty, and there were three white crosses lined up on the side of the road within view of the camp. Many years later, long after the war had ended, one of the former German prisoners of Camp B-70 was sitting in a cafe in Paris, of all places, when he spotted someone who looked familiar walking past. He chased the familiar face down the streets of Paris and he introduced himself, asking if he had been a prisoner of war at Camp B-70. The familiar face confirmed that he had been in that camp, and the cafe-goer expressed shock. He had thought that he was one of the three who were shot while trying to escape that night. The second former prisoner explained what had really happened that night. Guards had snuck into his bunk and awoken three of the prisoners. The three prisoners were loaded into a truck under the cover of darkness. As they got into the trucks, three rifle shots were fired into the air. The guards then told the three prisoners they were being transferred to a different prison camp in Alberta. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. John McKeel, voiced by Josh Green. George Roy, voiced by Nathaniel Brewer. Produced by Jordan Lozier.